It was April 28th, 1878. For 20 years, the delegates of the Oxford University Press, the publishing arm of the Oxford University in England, had been attempting the creation of a dictionary to define the words in the English language. And on this day, the scholars tasked with bringing this dictionary to fruition were staring into the face of a grim reality. After 20 years of debate, 20 years of work, and 20 years of effort, they had produced exactly nothing. Of course, we, the august delegates of the Oxford University Press, have been attempting to make this dictionary for the last 20 years, and despite the greatest efforts of a whole army of academics, myself included, we are precisely nowhere. Forgive me, that is incorrect. We are, in fact, going backwards. The language is developing faster than our progress. This great tongue of ours, which reaches out across the world, has drawn its guns, sharpened its bayonets, and declared that it will not be tamed. And we, with our debates ad nauseum about the scope, the mode, the purpose of these words, have all but thrown ourselves down in supplication before it, bathed in abject defeat. At this moment, the endeavor is dead. The language was moving faster than they were. But on this important day, they had come across a secret weapon. Freddie Furnival, the man speaking in the previous clip, had discovered an incredibly talented, passionate, and brilliant leader that he believed could be the savior of the project, a man by the name of James A. Murray. Gentlemen, I'm afraid nothing short of a panacea is called for. I submit that the extraordinary, the unconventional, Mr. Murray, is the solution and our salvation. Your account, though a bit dramatic, is true, Freddy. But we need something more than impassioned advocacy. Qualifications come to mind. Perhaps a bachelor's degree. Qualifications, yes. Well, um, I'm fluent in Latin and Greek, of course. And beyond those, uh, I have an intimate knowledge of the Romance tongues. Italian, French, Spanish, Catalan, and to a lesser degree, Portuguese, Vaudois, Provençal, and other dialects. In the Teutonic branch, I am familiar with the German, Dutch, Danish, and Flemish. I have specialized in Anglo-Saxon and Meso-Gothic, and have prepared works for publication on both these languages. I also have a useful knowledge of Russian. I have sufficient knowledge of Hebrew and Syriac to read at sight the Old Testament and the Peshito, and to a lesser degree, uh, Aramaic, Arabic, Coptic, and Phoenician, to the point where it was left by Jesenius. Uh, forgive me rattling on. Uh. Murray's talent was obvious. He was clearly the right man for the job, even though his credentials were less than his new bosses would prefer. The task that he was taking, however, was utterly enormous. All words are valid in the language ancient or new, obsolete or robust, foreign-born or homegrown. The book must inventory every word, every nuance, every twist of etymology, every possible illustrated citation from every English author. All of it or nothing at all. That would mean reading everything, quoting everything that showed anything to do with the history of the words that are to be cited. The task is gigantic, monumental. And impossible. There is a way. A task that might take one man a hundred lifetimes could take a hundred men just one. Volunteers, we have tried it before James and failed. I'm afraid there are not enough academics in the land. How many did you enlist? Eighty, perhaps ninety. With a thousand? You could accomplish it in just a few years. Where do you propose finding a thousand men? Everywhere English is celebrated and spoken. In every bookshop, school, workplace or home. Do you mean ordinary people? Amateurs? English-speaking ones, I. We'll ask them to read in search of the words that we want and get them to write the word on the slip of paper along with a quotation that they have found illustrating the very word. And then, post the slip to us. An entire army covering the breadth of the empire and beyond, drawing a sweep net over the whole of English literature listing the entirety of their own language. A dictionary by democracy. 
stealth, edited by us, learned men. And with this system, Mr. Murray, how long do you estimate to finishing your task? Five years, seven at most. All words and their complete histories? Every last one. Every last word. Murray immediately set about the task with absolute intensity. He and his team poured countless hours into the project, committing themselves to research, writing, and combing the history of English literature to find every single word. But it didn't take long for Murray to run into problems. His team was small, and his pleas for additional assistance to do research were met with frustrating denials. Not to mention, some of the definitions were incredibly difficult to determine. In particular, the definitions for the words approve and art needed for the first volume of the dictionary were not coming together at all. Struggling to keep the project held together and coming under pressure from the delegates to have more to show for his efforts, Murray needed more help. And one day, it came. Lord in heaven, help me. I'm lost. It's a miracle. It's impossible. Come down, man. Spread it out. Prove, sir. It's complete. Complete? You're right, sir. Others who approve not to transgress by thy example, Milton, Paradise Lost. Defender. No, not us, sir. You better read this. You see what a great sense of privilege I offer myself as a volunteer. Please, sir, read on. Enclosed. Please find 1,000 word slips with corresponding quotations from the height and depth of literature. I have derived a key, a type of dictionary within dictionary that allows the amassing of words with addended quotations. My request is simple, to make your burden light. Write to me. Tell me what specific words at present shimmer and fade at your grasp. Let useful others troll the oceans with their nets cast wide. I shall throw my line and pluck the very quotes that evade you when you call upon me to do so. Very truly yours, W.C. Minor, Crowthorn Berkshire. William Chester Minor had provided them with a huge blessing. 1,000 word slips and counting. And he was offering himself as a continued volunteer. Murray and his team were ecstatic and plunged into the work of trying to keep up with him. Ultimately, they finished the first volume of the dictionary, thanks in large part to Miner's contributions. But there was something Professor Murray didn't know. His helper was a madman. Miner, previously an American army surgeon during the U.S. Civil War, had immigrated to, the, to England after the war ended. However, the scars of his battle experience drove him into deep mental illness. One night, experiencing delusions, false beliefs, that he was being hunted by a man that he had hurt in the war, Miner raced out into the streets at night with a gun where he chased and shot and killed a completely innocent man on the doorsteps of his home with his wife watching. It was a heinous crime. And it was front page news. Minor was ultimately judged not to be guilty when charged with murder, but by reason of insanity. And he was condemned to life imprisonment at the Broadmoor Asylum for the Criminally Insane. One day, Murray traveled to meet Minor taking with him the first piece of the dictionary as a gift for the friend who helped him create it. It was here that he discovered just who his partner was. We've only just started. Partners, word for word. An American and Scott. How does an American come to I.D.'s gates? Story for another day. Let's continue the comparison. One Oxford, one Yale. Both grey. One brilliant, one mad. Ah, but which is which? 
Murray, however, was a man of deep faith. He accepted Minor. He welcomed him despite his past, and the two began a fruitful partnership that yielded great advances in the production of the dictionary. They were able to move faster and compile the dictionary quicker because of the friendship between a professor and a madman. Today we're in week three of our annual God on Film series, and today we're discussing the movie, The Professor and the Madman. Now for you movie buffs, the unfortunate reality is that because of an artistic fight between production companies, the movie was simply released direct to streaming services and DVD. So for those of you who are interested in finding it after today's service, uh, I know for sure you can find it on Amazon Prime's streaming service, and I was told between services you can find it at Redbox, um, but you will not find it in theaters. Now I really liked this movie, and I think the reason is because I want to know that I'm a part of something big. I want my life to matter. At the end, I want to say that I was a part of making something happen that made a difference, that changed things. I think probably many of you are the same way. In fact, I think deep down, all of us want to believe, to know, and to hope that we too can be a part of something great. For James Murray, the task was massive, every single word, but that is what made him want to do it. Can you think about that for just a moment? Defining every single word in an entire language? In his chosen field of study, the etymology of words, there was no bigger project than the Oxford English Dictionary. It didn't get bigger than that. And as I watched this movie and thought about it for a while, I began to ask myself the question, what's the Oxford English Dictionary for us? For people who follow Jesus, what's what's something that's that big? What is the project? What's What's the effort? What's the goal that's that big? Bigger than you and bigger than me. Because here's the cool thing. The Bible tells us in no uncertain terms that we serve a God who is both willing and able to do great things. Check out our focus verse. It's Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. It's up here on the screens. Let's recite this all together. Here we go. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to Him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. You see, this passage makes it clear that God is able, God is powerful in His work within individual Christians like you and me to accomplish things that we think could never be done. We serve a God who wants us to do things that have never been done. And he receives glory when each church family, just like us, shoots after goals that are huge. He receives glory when Jesus Christ is revealed in the life of individual people in ways that are powerful. So this morning, I want to take you to a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in it, I believe we will see four things. And those four things are very similar to the four things that the delegates saw in their own attempt to create the dictionary. Number one, I think we'll see the reality that we're living in. I think we'll see the Savior that's right in front of us. Thirdly, we'll see the true goal and the true ministry that we are called to. And finally, we'll see how to live it in such a way as we work to accomplish the goal. So let's begin this morning by assessing the truest reality. As we saw in the first clip, the Oxford Press delegates saw reality clearly. The language was changing, and they needed to bring definition to it in order to ensure common meaning. But each of us face a reality every day that we cannot escape. 
A truth that we simply must understand. 1 Corinthians 5.10 puts it into words. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Circle that word, all. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's like Paul is writing and he's saying, Hey, everybody, you're alive for now. You've got lots of things you're excited about. You've got school and sports and work and kids and everything else going on. I know, I know, you, I know you've got a lot on your mind and, and you're really thinking about that and you're living life now. But it's just me, you know, Paul over here, and I just want to remind you that, you know, there's going to come a day when you're not alive anymore. You might want to think about that. Because there's coming a day when you won't be here. Now, for some of you that have been around GNG for a long time, it's quite possible that this passage took your breath away by how quickly we jumped to the point and we jumped to talking about heaven and hell and eternal things and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is the truth is unavoidable, guys. One of these days, we are all going to face Jesus. And there will be a judgment. You see, contrary to popular statement, death and judgment, not death and taxes, are the only two guarantees. Death and judgment are the only two guarantees. You see, just like the delegates had to face reality about the progress of their dictionary, it's absolutely useless for us to walk into church and do this religion thing if we aren't going to take stock of the reality that we face. One of these days, we will all die. And after that will be a judgment. Hebrews 9.27 makes the point as well. People are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. And I think so often we act like this isn't true. We live our lives in complete denial of the fact that it's going to come to an end someday. I mean, I mean, if you're anything like me, I, 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 I did the same thing. As I was preparing for this lesson, I, I kind of I started thinking, when's the last time I actually thought about this? When's the last time I woke up and I, thought, I sat down and I thought about the fact, I better pay attention to how I live my life because every single breath I draw reminds me that I am one breath less toward the end. I am one step closer to dead today than I was yesterday. And guys, on the other side of that death and judgment is eternity. That word means forever. It doesn't end. And heaven and hell are the only two options. Death and judgment are the only two guarantees, but heaven and hell are the only two options. And some of you guys may be like, J.D., come on, man, you're like four minutes into this lesson, you're already talking about hell, what's going on? Like, guys, the reality is we have to talk about this. The truth is that every moment we are one moment closer to the point where we will not be here anymore. And that means every day we live, everything we do, the stakes keep getting higher. What you do and what I do matters because every day we have less of it to do it with. We're going to die and we're going to face a judgment in which we account for whether or not we believed in and followed Jesus, which offers us an eternity in heaven with him, or if we rejected him and lived life to please ourselves, thus choosing an eternity apart from Christ in hell. That's the reality. Guys, I don't, I don't necessarily love starting off this lesson this way, but in reality, it just is what it is. It doesn't matter if we're a Christian or an atheist. It doesn't matter if we're wealthy or poor. It doesn't matter if we're black or white or married or single. Everyone faces this reality every day. 
We live our lives with the truth of death and judgment and heaven and hell staring us in the face at all times. This is our reality. This is our truth. But it was into this reality that the Savior stepped in. Just as the talented James Murray was the hope for the dictionary, in this passage we see the true hope that is in front of us. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5.21. God, stop there. God. God the creator. God the one who made everything. God the one who created the world and all that is in it. Human beings stuck them into the world and said, live and worship me and rule over this world under my guidance, but we screwed that up. We disobeyed and sinned and created a cosmic rift between us and him. Our sins separate us from God, but God in his love was not content with that. He wanted to heal our relationship and to bring us back into union with him, but there was an issue, our sin, that which separated us from God in the first place. And since he is a God of justice, sin cannot go unpunished. So God made him, this is a reference to Jesus, right? So God made him, Jesus, who had no sin. The Bible tells us clearly that Jesus stepped into the world and he himself was without sin. He never did the wrong thing. He never disobeyed God. He never lived in the way that we so commonly do. He made him who had no sin to be sin. Now that word, circle that phrase right there, to be sin. What that means is God put Jesus in the place to be punished like sin instead of us. Guys, one of these days, if we don't have Christ in our lives and we don't have his sacrifice on our behalf, we will be punished for our sins. Right? But God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus' perfection and not our failure. He sees Jesus' goodness and not our sin. God did that. He sent Jesus into the world, him who had no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be seen like him. In effect, Jesus' death offers us an opportunity to be reconciled to God. By coming into our world and dying in our place, Jesus made it possible for us to have a relationship with God again. No longer does our sin define us. Paul says this, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. So for anyone who chooses to believe in Jesus, we become a new creation. It's like we get started over, born again, if you will. He says the old has gone, the new is here. Our old selves, our sin, our lives before Jesus can be gone. And a new person, a clean person, a whole person can be brought into the world. All this is from God, Paul says. So so it's because God worked on our behalf. It wasn't something that we did for ourselves. God did this. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. I love that phrase, not counting people's sin against them. Have you ever had somebody hold something against you? Somebody that, that you knew or that you loved and they had some, some piece of dirt on you perhaps and they just found ways to bring it up every now and again? That thing they wouldn't let go? That nickname that they keep calling you that ties back to something stupid you did a whole bunch of years ago that won't ever go away? But God, in his love for us, and through what Jesus did, doesn't hold our sins against us. That that stain on our character doesn't stay for God because of what Jesus did. But But there's an important phrase that was there in the middle. I hope you caught it. It's at the end of verse 18. 
All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. In other words, it's, in other words, it's like God is here and, and human beings are here. And Jesus stepped into the middle to bring the two sides back together. And then he says this, God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and circle this phrase, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So God is here, and human beings are here, and Jesus steps in and performs the reconciliation. He brings the two sides back together, back into relationship through what he has done. And then, and then he gives you and I, individual Christians who have chosen to believe in him and chosen to accept what he has done on our behalf, he gives us the opportunity to be the ones who carry the message of his reconciliation out into the world to a whole bunch of people who need it. God used Jesus to reconcile us with God, and then he gave us, the followers of Jesus, an opportunity to be the ministers that take that message of reconciliation to others. And that's the greatest ministry in the world, guys. And it carries with it the greatest goal You see, much like Murray trying to write this monumental, all-encompassing dictionary, every Christian is called to achieve the same massive goal and to perform the same ministry. Look at what Paul says. He says, and he has committed to us. When he says us, he's referring to you and me as believers. He, He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. God has given you and I the task of taking it to the world. Even if you're in the room today and you're not a Christian, you're somebody who hasn't hasn't really come to faith yet, maybe you're here just kind of checking things out, here's the deal. If you know nothing else about Christians, here's what you got to know today. If you know nothing else about Christians, here's what you know today. Once a person believes that Jesus is who he said he was and died on our behalf, once that person, once that person steps across that line of faith and takes on Jesus as the most important thing in their life, their primary task becomes to help others reconcile to God. The minute a person believes in Jesus, then immediately their primary task becomes help somebody else come to Jesus. Help somebody be reconciled with God. Guys, this is our most important thing. This is our Oxford English Dictionary. This is the one thing that every Christian is called to do. The singular focus of every Christian life is this. Help somebody else be reconciled to God. But he goes on. He says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. If you're not familiar with that term ambassadors, ambassador is a person who is from one country but goes to live in a different country and work on behalf of the country that he's from. So here in America, we have people all over the world that are currently right now living in other countries. They're Americans. They were born here. They lived here. But they've gone to work in other countries on behalf of American interests. They're, they're called ambassadors. And, and Paul is basically saying that's what, that's what Christians are called to do, right? We, we believe in Jesus, and so now we're sent out into the world on behalf of Jesus to do Jesus' work in the world with other people who don't yet believe in him. But Paul goes on, he says, we implore you. Right? He says the work of an ambassador is to do this, implore. Circle that word, implore. It's to implore people on Jesus' behalf. It's to go to people on behalf of Christ and to say, please. It's, that word means beg or plead. I'm begging you, come be reconciled to God. This is what he said the Christian life is all about. This is what he's saying. He's saying this is, this is what it's all about. Once we become Christians, our job is to implore people on Jesus' behalf to come back to him, to be reconciled to him, to engage in relationship with him again. And guys, when we think about, when we think about that, it entails with it a huge goal. 
A huge, an absolutely monumental goal. Way bigger than the creation of a dictionary with every single word in it. Our goal is different. Our goal is bigger. And that goal is this, that every person on earth should be reconciled to God. Our goal, in no uncertain terms, is to reach everyone. Every single one. That's the goal. The one big thing that Christianity is focused on, every single one of us, in our minds, in our hearts, on our bucket list, ought to have this at the top. Every single one. All of them. Everywhere. Jesus himself told us that this was the goal in Matthew 28, 19. He said, therefore, he's talking to his apostles, therefore, go and make disciples of what? All. All nations. Go after everyone. We can't guarantee we're going to get them all to believe. We can't guarantee that we're going to get them all to accept it. But the reality is we have to give it to them all. We have to tell them all. Guys, there are over 7 billion people on the planet right now. If you look at most of the polls, the the information stats, the data that they do, they'll they'll tell you that one-third of all people on the planet Earth are Christians. Right? The reality is a large number of those people that are considered Christians on those kinds of data points are actually from nations where they're considered Christians, but they don't actually necessarily have any relationship with Christ personally. So the number is actually a whole lot bigger. <laughs> we have to reach a whole lot more people. We have to reach a lot of the people that are considered Christians as well as all the people that are definitely not considered Christians. But that's the goal. That's the goal. God made us his ambassadors not to be content with a few people getting baptized here or a few people coming to faith there. Not to be content with just a few million people making it into heaven. This is our job. Share the message of Christ with every single one. And guys, on the one hand, I know, I know, as I'm standing up here, as I'm talking about this, there's probably many of you out in the audience going, J.D., that's crazy. It's impossible. But let me ask you a question in return. Doesn't it kind of thrill you a little bit? Doesn't the fact that it's so crazy to think about trying to share the message of Jesus with every single person on the planet, doesn't the mere fact of that kind of make you want to do it? Doesn't just the thought in your mind that you, right where you are, with all of your faults and weaknesses and insecurities, you have been drafted into the team that God is using to send his message to every single person on the planet. Doesn't that kind of make you want to do it? Guys, the reality that we face is that death and judgment are coming. And only those who have believed and trusted in Christ and his death on their behalf will spend eternity with him in heaven. And our responsibility is to share that message with every single person. So what I want to do with the last few minutes that we have is talk about how we achieve that goal. And Paul laid it out very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. He says this, Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, and, and by fear the Lord, what he means is, since we know that there's coming a day when we're going to take account for how we've lived, <laughs> right? Since we fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. Circle that last phrase, persuade others. Simply put, In order to live out the goal to reach every single person on the planet, every Christian has to live persuasive lives for Christ. All of us have to live persuasive lives for Christ. The way that we live, what we do every day, will be the clearest indication of what we believe. And if we're going to live lives that are persuasive and attractive and cause people to consider what we believe, then I believe that we have to display some of the six persuasive characteristics that Paul goes on to define in these next few verses. 
right? And in, 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 in light of doing a lesson that's covering a movie that's about a dictionary, what I, what, I, what I want to do over this next few minutes is give you six words or phrases that I think define what a persuasive life looks like. This is the definition of a persuasive life. And the first, the first definition of a persuasive life is a genuine one. A genuine one. Our lives can't be fake. Our faith must be real. There must be a genuine relationship between what we claim to believe and the way that we actually live our lives. Now, to be clear, nobody's perfect and nobody ever will be. I'm not expecting that. All right? But the people in our lives ought to be able to see a clear alignment between what we say and what we do. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, what we are is plain to God. Underline or circle that phrase. Do something with it. All right? What we are is plain to God. I hope it is also plain to your conscience. In other words, he's saying, guys, look at me. Look at my life. What I am and how I live and what I believe is completely obvious to you. Because you can see it. You can see there is clear alignment between how I live and what I do. You can tell that Jesus is the most important thing for me. I'm genuine. I'm not perfect, but I'm real. He goes on, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again. In other words, he's saying, I'm not trying to brag. I'm not trying to act like I'm better than anybody else, but I'm, I'm, but I'm telling you. I'm giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. In other words, I'm giving you an opportunity to look at us and go, yeah, yeah, they're legitimate. They're real. They're genuine Christians. So that when other people come up against us, you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. What he's saying is, I'm giving you the opportunity to look at me and take notes about my life so that you can see that my motivation is good. And you can say to others, no, he's real. Guys, if you and I are going to live persuasive lives, our behavior matters. Our lives, if they don't match up with what we say, people will ignore and deny our message. They'll make decisions about Jesus because of the mistakes that we make in our life, the sins, the, the, the inconsistency. They'll make decisions about Jesus because of the way we live. But if our lives match our beliefs, then people can't write us off as inconsistent or hypocritical even when we fail and fall short. But I think there's a second definition that helps us see what a persuasive life looks like, and it's this, radical yet rational. Radical yet rational. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.13. If, 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 we, if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. In other words, guys, there are going to be times where if you are actually living the Christian life in the way the Bible calls us to live it, and, and doing Christian living in the way that God has demanded of us, then the reality is that there are going to be people who don't believe that look at you and go, Okay, that's weird. I don't understand that guy. What's that all about? What? Why is he going to church all, every Sunday all of a sudden? Why is he doing that? Why, why are they giving away their money? It's weird. Don't they know they could use that? <laughs> he's, he's talking about going on a foreign mission trip. Don't they know that's dangerous? Why did he give up partying? I mean, I, I don't see him around here anymore. I mean, he's always here. What? Why is she saving sex for marriage? Because the reality is, if, if, if we're going to actually live the Christian life, then there ought to be people in our lives going, I don't understand that. That seems kind of crazy to me. 
a little bit radical. The question I think we have to ask ourselves this morning is this. When was the last time that our behavior was so godly that it made a person who didn't believe go, wow, that's weird? Think about that. But on the other hand, our lives aren't all radical. They're also rational. Think about this. He says, if, if, if we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. In other words, he's owning the fact that sometimes Christians are going to do things that make no sense to anybody who doesn't believe. But then he says, if we are in our right mind, in other words, if we appear very rational, if we appear very thoughtful, if we appear very reasonable, then it's for you. And guys, here's the point of what Paul is trying to say. There are people out in the world today with very real questions about why we believe what we believe. There are people out there with real, honest, legitimate questions about the Bible and faith and politics and science and a million other categories. And Christians have got to have answers for those questions. We have to be rational. We have to be thoughtful because the thing that annoys non-Christians more than anything else is when they come to a Christian with a legitimate question and they ask it and the Christian goes, well, I don't really know the answer to that, but I just believe. It's annoying. And it's not good enough. It's not good enough, guys. We have to be prepared to give rational, thoughtful, reasonable answers for people when they ask us questions about why we believe what we believe. We have to have answers. Paul says, if I'm out of my mind... It's because I'm doing what Jesus wants me to do. But if if I'm in my right mind, it's because I want people to know that they can get answers for the questions they have. We have to meet the needs of people who have real questions. Thirdly, a persuasive life is a selfless one. Paul goes on, For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all. Jesus died for everyone. And therefore all died. In other words, all of us appear to God as having been paid for by the punishment that Jesus took in our place. And he died for all that those who live, circle this phrase, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Jesus died so that you and I would stop living for ourselves. You see, what, that's what sin is at the core. Sin is simply chasing something that you want over and above what God wants. It's making a decision to put something else over him. And the truth is we are called by God to be people who get beyond ourselves. When we become followers of Jesus, inherent in that call is a call to lose yourself. We serve others and we share with others and we care for others. There there is no more persuasive life than the one spent being a blessing to someone else. You might want to write that down in your margin or something somewhere. There is no more persuasive life than the one being spent as a blessing to somebody else. Finally, or not finally, I'm sorry, fourthly, there's another definition for the persuasive life, and that's this, intentional. The persuasive life is an intentional life. Simply put, you and I will not accidentally share our faith. And we can't expect people to come to faith just because we live really good lives. Our good life, apart from being intentional about sharing our faith, is likely to be ineffective. There's this famous quote, probably all of you, if, if, well, probably most of you, if not all of you, have heard this quote. It's, it's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, even though there's not a lot of good evidence to, to show for the fact that he said it. But he, he's attributed with saying this, preach the gospel always. And if necessary, use words. I want you to look at that. You realize that's completely impossible? That's not actually possible. 
Now, it, it is possible, it is definitely possible to, to live a genuine life, to live a selfless life, to, to live a radical and yet rational life, apart from using words. But the reality is, guys, you and I cannot actually share the message of Jesus with anyone without using words. We cannot actually spread the gospel without speaking. Instead of the above quote, I wish it would be read this way. Preach the gospel always and whenever possible, use words. Now the fact is, there are going to be people that see you and never speak to you. So in that situation, yes, all they have to go on is your actions. If they see you at a bus stop or at an airport or you know, at Walmart and you do something nice for somebody, maybe they'll get a little something out of that Christ-like action. Maybe they'll be encouraged to go do something nice for somebody else. But make no mistake, just because you did something nice, it doesn't mean that somebody saw the truth of the gospel in you. They saw you do something nice. Apart from actually talking about what you and I believe, we cannot actually share the message of Jesus. Romans 10.14 says it really clearly. How then can they call on one they have not believed in? Paul says, I mean, if if somebody's going to come to faith, they've got to call on God. And how can they call on someone if they haven't believed in him? Well, they can't, and they won't. Well, and how can they believe in one in the one of whom they have not heard. In other words, and if they haven't heard about him, well, how can they call on him and believe in him? Well, they can't do that either. And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? We have to talk. We must be intentional about talking with real people in real life about our real faith. And no, I don't just mean inviting them to church. It's a nice start. But if we're actually going to reach everyone on the whole planet with the message of Jesus, then all of us who are Christians have to actually be able to talk about it. So I want to, be, I want to encourage you to be a little more intentional today. And, and, and to do so, I want to ask us all to really reflect on these four questions. There's four questions on your outline there. I want, I want us all to think about this. Where are the people in my life who need to be reconciled to God? Where are they? Are they at your work? Are they under your own roof? Are they down the street? Where are they? Who are they? What are their names? Who are the people that need to be reconciled to God in your life? What, what are their names? How do you plan to share Christ with them? Think about that because it's different for different people, right? I mean, some people have a laundry list of questions they have about God and they need answers to these questions before they're ever going to believe. Some people, they don't, need that. they don't need all that. Some people just need to hear the story, right? Some people need to, need to know how it's impacted you. Some people need to know the history. How are you going to share the message of Jesus with the people in your life that you know, that you know for sure that God is calling you to? Because here's how you can know if, here's how you can know if somebody in your life is somebody that you should be sharing the gospel with. Are they breathing? And do you know who they are? That's all it takes. If they're breathing and you know who they are, then you know that God has called you to share the gospel with them. How do you do it? When are you going to do it? When are we going to do this, guys? When are we going to plan to share Christ with them? Someday is not when. When are we going to do it? We have to think about this. Guys, living a persuasive life is key to accomplishing this huge task that God has put before us. Right? 
And intentionality is one of those definitions. We have to be intentional. This, is, this cannot be something we just, oh yeah, maybe if I get to it. Like, this is the job. Fifth, hopeful. We have to live a hopeful life. And what I mean by that is something very, in, very specific. We must maintain an attitude of hope about all people. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.16. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. In other words, what he's saying is now nobody is out of reach. Now nobody is unimportant because we've come to Christ and because we recognize that he died on behalf of all people and because we want everybody to come to faith. Now we don't see anybody as just ah, somebody that's never going to get it. Eh, just write them off. Ah, they're not a big deal. No, everybody's important. And we have hope for every person that if we just share the message of Christ with them, they might come to believe. There's a fascinating moment that happens in The Professor and the Madman. As I mentioned earlier, Murray allowed William Minor to continue contributing to the dictionary well after he discovered his issue. You see, Murray was able, because of his faith, to look past Minor's past and to see him from more than a worldly point of view. And he was eventually able to allow him to help them create a massive amount of the dictionary. But there was a problem. You see, word leaked about Minor's involvement. It got to the London papers, at which point it was spread all over the place. The delegates were furious and threatened Murray with removal from his position. And Murray's own wife, Ada, chastised him for allowing such a wretched sinner to assist in the creation of the dictionary. Nothing you can tell me to make this right. All the wisdom, all the diligence, and you simply... How long have you known about his madness? How much time have you spent with this man? Why are you so hungry? What difference can it possibly make? His work on the dictionary proves he is sane. He fooled that jury and he fooled you. What about repentance, Ada? What about redemption? The delegates, your team, your family, we all deserve more than the Havel. Stop! I could call into question the morality of every invisible volunteer we've ever leaned on. This one hits his children, that one's on the whiskey, and this one, oh, didn't you hear? He cheats on the Times crossword. Remove the blackguard from the list. He's a murderer. He lied to you. Have you never lied? Have you not? What are you so afraid of? That a bad man can be redeemed? Isn't that what we believe? What we whisper to our children at night? What we pray for? Forgiveness. You see, Murray never lost sight of the fact that God's grace was big enough for everyone. Even a psychotic murderer. We can't lose sight of that either. There's no one in your life and no one in mine who's beyond the reach of the grip of God's grace. Nothing is impossible with God. And we must maintain an attitude of hope toward all people that all people might come if we give them the truth about what Jesus did on their behalf. It's key to a persuasive life that we maintain a sense of hope, deep hope, that anybody, anybody can be forgiven. And finally, if we're going to live a persuasive life, we must be persevering. Persevering. We cannot give up, we cannot back down, and we must keep striving to the end. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. No one that you share the message of Jesus with is in vain. Nothing you do to help somebody be reconciled to God is in vain, whether they accept it or not. Keep going. Keep working 
Start sharing your faith with someone, anyone now and just keep doing it. James Murray was dedicated to the dictionary for the remainder of his life. He persevered to the end, even though he never actually saw the end of his dictionary. when the dictionary was still at T. He never quit. He never stopped. But he didn't see the end. And guys, unless Jesus re- decides to return, it's quite possible that this last bullet point is true, that this work may outlive you. This work may outlive me. Stay committed. Stay committed. The work may outlive us. We, we may never actually see the day where the message of Christ has been preached to everybody. We may not live to the point where the, the gospel has been preached to the whole world. But you know what? Keep going. Persevere. Do the work as he has called you and don't quit until your time and your work is done. If you guys will... As we close this morning, I'd like you to do me a favor. Pull out, pull out that Connect card that's in your packet of information. Go and pull that out. And I want you to think about a couple of things as we, as we close off today. If you're one of those people that's at the point where you've been coming and you've been thinking about Jesus and you've, you've kind of thought, you know, I think I believe this now. I'd really encourage you to flip over your Connect card to the back of the, the, the back. There's a little box over on the left-hand side, and there's a box that, that's checked baptism. And if you're a person who, who, who hasn't yet been baptized, hasn't yet made that step of faith, I would encourage you to check that box and, and consider coming in this week for a baptism interview. We have a baptism coming up on, uh, on August 4th, and I would really love for you to be a part of that if you're interested. Secondly, there's, there's some opportunities for you to give around here. Give of yourself in service. We talk about that as one of the key elements of being a Christian, giving of ourselves in service. And there's a, there's a major event coming up here at G&G in the next couple of weeks that offers you numerous opportunities to give of yourself. And that's the back-to-school free sale. We're going to have hundreds of families coming through here on, on, on uh, Saturday, August 3rd. And if you're interested in getting signed up to serve or if you're interested in, mon- in, in giving a monetary donation to assist with that project, there's a table out in the atrium that you can go check out and get involved in that and give of yourself in service. And if you haven't done that yet or you're interested in doing it, I would encourage you. There's also a way, if, if you're interested in the financial side, that you can even give to donate to that particular service um, through the app that we have here at GNG, the GNG app. So I would encourage you to check that out. But specific to this lesson, guys, all of you that have your connect card in your hand today, I want to encourage you, if you're willing this week to commit that you will engage at least one person in sharing your faith, if you're willing to say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a point this week to share Jesus somehow with someone in my life this week, I'd like you to, to just write the words, I'm going on that connect card. I'm going. I'm going out into the world and I'm going to make a difference and I'm going to share my faith with someone who needs it. If you're, if you're going to make that choice this week, write I'm going on your Connect card and drop that in the back in the communication card jars. Guys, the single greatest work that any of us can be involved in, the greatest goal that we can chase is to help somebody else reconcile to God. 
This is not optional for followers of Christ. This is the work. Let's pray. Father God, I I thank you for today. And I thank you for the opportunity that we have in front of us to listen to your word and to have it challenge us. Father, may we be the kind of people that will go into our world and share you with people who desperately need it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.